We're talking about Christmas Day, a day when people kind of generally know where everyone is. You know, like you know where your family members are. You'd think that for someone who had family or a kid who, pro you know, or so who was expected at Christmas dinner or whatever, someone's absence on that day would kind of stick out. Unless we're talking like, you know, the loner type who who doesn't have anyone. You know what I mean? That the Christmas Day thing. It's yeah, yeah. You would think if you know if you're having family dinners and those sorts of things, if one's absent from the uh, from the table, it would be a noticeable absence. But again, <laughs> anything is anything yeah. is possible. I mean, this is so open ended because you have so little to go on. I mean, you have fragments of a device. And very and 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 the witness statements don't get any better because they can't even agree on a on a composite. It, it's the whole case. I, I understand why it's where it is because they just didn't have anything to go on. They really didn't. I would have thought if it was the if they were targeting the store, they would have attached it to the gas thing or attached it to somewhere nearer to the store. I don't know. I, you know, yeah. just trying to think these things through. Any, yeah, and if you have any background in explosives, you would know that if, if if the store is your target, this device is just simply not adequate to create the kind of damage that you would want to either just the store or shut it down or harm people even within the store. My name is Brett Holmes, and I am a police officer. I've been a police officer for six years now. I'm also a firefighter EMT, uh, currently serving as a lieutenant in fire service uh, for the department that I'm on. I'm a fire and explosion investigator. First, let's explain for the listener who, like me, doesn't know anything. Tell me what a pipe bomb is and how it generally works. Well, a pipe bomb generally is a pretty, I guess, primitive, you could say, design. Um, it's fairly simple to construct. It doesn't take a lot of intelligence to make it work. Uh, typically, you'll see a segment of pipe. It can range really any length. It depends on the preference of or what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, usually a steel device um, that tends to help with the pressurization that's needed in order to get the maximum, maximum effect uh, from whatever explosive that you're using. Um, Kind of, like I said, depends on what somebody's trying to accomplish with it. I mean, you you can see plenty of, you know, backyard idiots just out thinking they're doing something to have fun. And it's really nothing more than a, a tube with some, some type of accelerant or explosive inside. Um, and it ranges from that all the way to the other end of the spectrum where people are building a more sophisticated device that contains things like ball bearings, bolts, screws, nails, and those are, you know, pretty malicious. The FBI did an analysis of the items sent in that were found scattered around the shop-and-go scene, as well as chemical and microscopic analyses. They also did latent fingerprint examinations. In their findings, they described the bomb as an improvised explosive device, or IED, which consisted essentially of a length of pipe nipple enclosed at each end by pipe end caps, and double base smokeless powder as the explosive main charge. They believed that a piece of damaged battery fragment indicated that it had an electrical fusing system. That, in addition to the monofilament line, noted not only by witnesses, but taped to a piece of the box found at the scene, led them to the conclusion that the device was constructed to function as an anti-disturbance device, meaning the release or application of pressure to a component in the electrical fusing system would complete the electrical circuit and initiate the bomb. In the pipe threads of one of the metal fragments found at the scene was a partially consumed particle of double-base smokeless powder. 
On a piece of cardboard, they found gray-colored smudges, which revealed the presence of zinc. Damage to the submitted bomb components, such as pipe and nails, indicated that the smokeless powder explosive main charge may have been initiated by a blasting cap or similar detonator. They also noted a variety of nails, most of them with explosive damage to them, some only fragments, and they indicated that they were employed in the device to cause injury and or death to the individuals in close proximity to the bomb when it exploded. They found blood and skin tissue adhered to some of these nail fragments. When you're talking about smokeless powders, for the purpose of our discussion here, we'll keep it pretty basic. You have a single base smokeless powder, which typically is, is just a new uh, nitrocellulose. But then when you get to the double base, what makes that double base is there's the addition of nitroglycerin. And when you add nitroglycerin into that, the purpose of doing that is it creates a higher velocity for your projectiles if you're loading your own rounds, and it, uh, it, it burns much more rapidly. In and of itself, not terribly concerning, very common product. You'll find it anywhere, any sporting goods store you go into. And if somebody were going to build a pipe bomb, that's probably what you'd expect to find in it. Mm. Where you kind of, we got to kind of go out into the weeds a little deeper with this, though, when we're talking about explosives. Um, there's, you know, you have your two basic types of, of explosives are your high order and your low order, which we talked a little bit about before. Mm-hmm. And the primary difference between your high order and your low order really is, it's whether or not there's a detonation. So I know when a lot of people think that a, some type of explosive goes off, they think the mere fact that it went off, there was a detonation. Well, for the purpose of investigating explosion to speak on this issue scientifically, the detonation is... That, that's not, it's not that simple. Hmm. Detonation occurs when there's a hypersonic blast that's being produced by that explosion is, is, a, is traveling at a hypersonic speed. So then you have your low order, which doesn't create that hypersonic effect. It has more of a, what we call a deflagration. Um, it's, it's more of a burn um, rather than the explosion. So, and your, your basic smokeless powders, they're not what you would consider a high-order explosive, except when you take a double-base smokeless powder and you marry that with another circumstance such as um, a particular containment or particular type of, uh, of triggering device. So that's kind of what struck me. Um, and, you know, and we don't have enough information necessarily to infer that from um, from looking at this particular case because there's just so much of it that's missing. It doesn't look like, and correct me if I'm wrong, from what I'm looking at here, they weren't able to recover um, most of or all of the container. They just have a segment of it. Right. And according to lab analysis, they say it was at least eight inches long. Mm-hmm. And they're calling it a nipple, which is a part of the pipe that'll have threads on each end so you can cap it. Again, not uncommon for a pipe bomb device. Um, But, you know, assuming that this pipe bomb device is eight inches or in that neighborhood, what strikes me about that is because in my experience on the job, I've not encountered, personally not encountered a pipe bomb that short. They're usually a foot or more in length, um, and that's just the common way people do it. So, what, uh, what's interesting about that is when you take the double base powder and you introduce it to 
that small of a container. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what you need to do to make that double base powder act, uh, to be able to act as a high order explosive. Oh, oh, that's interesting. So that's the point that I'm kind of, you know, like I said, you kind of got to get into the weeds a little bit to the with the technical jargon of investigated explosives, but that's what struck me about it. I mean, we, we don't have enough information to say that's what was done, but if we're, you know, keeping an open mind, we're being objective in the investigation, uh, you know, what you have is what you have, and you have to make your assumptions based on what you're looking at. So, right. Um, well, that's interesting. Now, if I'm picking picking up what you're laying down here for me, is that we don't know if that was inadvertent or advertent, basically, whether the person yes. was smart enough to know that or not. Yes, that's that's the point that I'm driving at. Gotcha. Is that we, we don't know. I mean, that, that person may have had that intention to do that. They may not have. Um, what you accomplish by doing that when you create that kind of that situation where you you create the circumstances present that need to be present for a, a high order type detonation. Um, what that does also too is if you're if you are, I guess for lack of a better term, a skilled bomb maker, you understand that if you're going to conceal your device, that you need to ensure that you have proper velocity. If what you're trying to do is main people and you're trying to do that by, by filling the air with projectiles, you need to ensure that you have the proper velocity to where that your projectiles are going to be able to penetrate your concealing device and be able to maintain the velocity needed to be effective. Right. Hmm. You know what shocked me is that where the air pump was on the corner, so if you picture a a four-way stop in a small town, and on one side of that four-way stop is the, um, or one corner of it is the uh, convenience store, and then at the very tip of that uh, parking lot, closest to the four-way stop, is where the machine is, the air machine, basically. Mm-hmm. Right there next to where the sign would be on the p- big pole that sticks up in the air that says shop and go or whatever. Now, I'd say um, the, the pumps, the gas pumps themselves were not far from that. The gas pumps were, I think they said, I, I'm trying to remember, somewhere between like, like, you know, 100 feet or so. It wasn't like a big sp- Base. There wasn't a, you know, it's a small parking lot. So I, I was so shocked that, and then there was a gash in one of them. Um, it seems to me like, I guess I'm just shocked that it didn't blow up the the gas pump being that close. You know what I mean? Well, you know, the tanks are stored underground. And I think, I mean, this is 1984. Obviously, a lot's changed since then. So I do believe at the time there were still certain safety components in place to prevent um, external forces from being able to, ignite what was being stored mm-hmm. either within the pump or in the underground storage okay. uh, and if you you know this type of device that's really designed to maim more so than anything else um you you one could not reasonably expect unless they were an amateur and didn't know any better one could not reasonably expect the missiles that you create with that device to, to be able to ignite or create secondary explosions mm. so my question then is, is what does this tell you, if anything, about the perpetrator? Are we talking, is this something you would learn in the military? Or is this something, remember, we're pre-internet. So how would someone in that time period first have this knowledge? And what type of person do you, would, or people are you looking at as far as perpetrators? Well, that's a good question, you know, and I did put some thought into that. And uh, I had some ideas on that. And I did a little digging around. Um, you know, like I said, I think... For somebody to build this type of device and put it where they did, their intent was pretty clear. And, you know, that speaks a lot to somebody's heart. Mm. Um, now, you know, 
I think probably, um, and it, like I said, this is purely assumption at this point, mm-hmm. you probably rule out terrorism as a motive because it really doesn't fit the bill. I mean, terrorism is designed, at least per the Department of Defense definition of terrorism, that's designed to create a psychological effect on more than just a small community. That's something that you do that has a symbolic effect, and it's done with the goal of some type of religious or political change in mind. So I don't think we've achieved that here. I couldn't necessarily identify what that would be. We could say, you know, it's Christmas Day. Maybe there was some religious connection to it, but that doesn't appear to be the case, especially because terrorists also are pretty good about claiming responsibility for things. They want the notoriety. They want their message out. Right. So I think you could probably, based on what's going on here, you can probably eliminate that as, as a motive. Um, what it says about the person, I mean, it can say a couple things. You know, if if we assume that all the conditions present, the the use of the double base powder, like I said, which is not uncommon, but the use of the smaller container, which will help achieve the desired effect with the double base powder, when those things are all added up, I mean, you know, it's, uh, you can, we have to keep an open mind. You can assume that that person... It was either it was either one of two things that they were just lucky, I guess for lack of a better term, they just got things right by pure foolish luck, mm-hmm. or they knew what they were doing. Um, what it, further what it says about the person? I mean, you know, that kind of crosses over into the behavioral and psychological analysis of the offender, which is far outside my bailiwick. Mm. But um, you know, I think somebody that is that malevolent uh, doesn't just stop doing that. The explosive main charge was contained in a one and a half inch galvanized standard weight pipe nipple sealed at both ends by end caps. The FBI determined the length to have been at least eight inches. They found that the monofilament line was tied to the paper shopping bag and felt that the connection of this line to some type of switch within the device would, upon release or application of pressure, complete the electrical circuit. They were never able to locate any identifiable switching mechanism in the debris, so the document from the FBI noted, quote, the method of construction and type of switch employed would, of course, be dependent upon the bomb builder's resources and ingenuity. Uh, tell me just a bit about a tr- that triggering mechanism, like just as a basic understanding. You've got the the powder, you've got the nails, you've got the metal. Then you need something to make it go boom. I assume. So what what is the trigger? What is what exactly? How what part does the triggering mechanism play when you've got it all into one piece of you know device? Well, you're, if you're using the smokeless powder, uh, yes, this is more of a. I, I, I guess I would characterize it more as a mechanical explosion. This is not necessarily a chemical reaction taking place. This is taking a a flammable powder, a combustible material, flammable material, and introducing an ignition source to it. Um, so your triggering device can it can be a lot of different things. I mean, I've seen pipe bombs where people run fuse cord into the cap and light it and throw it, and then you have a situation like this one here where there was obviously something more sophisticated at, at play. Although, to what degree, we don't know, because there's just not enough of it left. What what exists out there in the realm of possibility that you would use a battery to make a triggering mechanism? What is it? A well, piece of something? You complete, could complete an electrical circuit with a bat, some type of battery trigger. Um, and that depends largely on what the victim did to the 
item to cause that detonation. I know there was some thought maybe that the monofilament line that was tethering the package to the air compressor machine mm-hmm. may have had something to do with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what the witnesses said is that, and they found, it, I didn't send you the pictures, but they found pieces of the box that had monofilament um, t- knotted around it. So the, mm-hmm. that was used, um, it went from the box up the some of the cord of the um, air pump and then uh, up towards the top of where the cord goes in and then about halfway around where that monofilament ran it was tied so that if you touched it I assume it was gonna blow sure um, now what's because there, there's a lot of this stuff I mean this is back when we were still doing handwritten reports and a lot of it's not easy to read yeah had the victim been able to place any coins in the machine to get it to operate or had it detonated prior to him activating the machine there's no indication of either way we don't know i don't know it doesn't mention it at all either way sure so one possibility is is that dropping the coin into the machine activating the machine powering it up may have had something to do with the ignition device um pulling on the monofilament line may have removed something in this in between batteries that completed the circuit you're really limited by nothing here other than the imagination of the person that built it. Gotcha. So that part, that part of the the thing seems like it would be require some sort of understanding of how to make an electrical circuit, right? Yes, and and this is stuff that you learn in high school. This isn't necessarily anything that makes this person particularly intelligent. Okay. Um, you know, you asked about military stuff. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, there's some there are some military specialties out there that you would learn these types of things. Uh, You know, um, foreign assistance forces, the uh, Green Berets, people that we use to train um, other other nations' militaries, some of the guys that uh, operate in the clandestine environment, covert operations, they would have that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and like I said, doing a little bit of digging on this, you're, you're absolutely right. We didn't have the Internet at this time. This knowledge wasn't as accessible as it is now. But we also weren't far removed from the turbulent political climate of the Vietnam era. Right. We had the weather underground. We had the bombings that were occurring there at police stations and government facilities. Um, So it would not be it would not be unreasonable to expect that this person didn't have some type of assistance, uh, whether or not who he spoke to, he or she spoke to knew what they were helping them do is I and mean, that's open to question who knows um, but certainly they can network um, you know the by this point in time the anarchist cookbook had been published for 13 years I believe it was released in 1971 right and that's basically a big old book of how to to create all kinds of things from explosives to um, you know rudimentary firearms uh, you name it yeah um, so it, the, the information wasn't nearly as accessible but it was out there yeah, um, was there, and it was pretty close to a, a really turbulent time in our nation's history as well. Uh, so these people were out there. Yeah, and I and I think you're right. There were um, <clears throat> this was just pre when the very first computers started coming, and I did do some research, and there were some when the first kids around the later '80s started getting their modems, and you know the real. Uh, fancy people, not like us, because I didn't have one that early on. But um, they, there was a rash of in the local schools where they were finding um, uh, kids that were doing some simple bombs around in the area. But they weren't like pipe bombs like this. But there, and then there were like message boards apparently where you could get information. I'm so. But what you're saying though, in in, in a military environment, it's not like everyone that goes into the military is taught how to make a pipe bomb. That's not how it works, right? I mean, they wouldn't. No, absolutely 
probably not. For let's for the purposes of just hypothesizing here, is this a type of device that you could let's say set and then decide for some reason it wasn't what the way you wanted it, take it and then put it back? How touchy is this kind of device going to be? Well, uh, it would uh, that would depend largely on the bomb maker's knowledge of his device. Uh, if, if he sets that and he's got a triggering device or anti-tampering device on that, um, they would probably be the only ones that would know how to move that without causing the detonation or the triggering of the device. Um, so, you know, like I said, without knowing who triggered for sure, uh, it's really too hard to say. Is it the kind of device that was probably when it was when it was set that was it the bullet left the gun and there was no recalling it? Stability. Hmm. Yeah. And so it, it basically would depend on the that triggering mechanism then, and if they had something in there where they can easily. Because I've always wondered how difficult is it to. I mean, you make a bomb wherever you make it at home, I assume, or wherever, and then you've got to transport it. I mean, how volatile are these types of things to move from one place to another? You know, before you set them. Um, you you know you would be surprised. A lot of the things that are that especially high explosives, a lot of things that are used to create those types of devices, are in and of themselves pretty stable. And when you add or take away some component, that's really what creates the volatility. Um, uh, plastic explosives are are similar to that. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of it probably in military movies and whatnot. C4 plastic explosives. Mm-hmm. Um, in and of themselves, they're not. They're not terribly dangerous to handle. They're not particularly volatile, but there's certain things that you add to that compound that makes it extremely dangerous. Mm. I guess my biggest takeaway from this is to look at what was used in this. A lot of people will probably look at the explosive that was used and not give it a lot of thought and probably come back to the assumption that this is a rudimentary device that somebody that really didn't know what they were doing was using and did. Um, but I think that the simplicity of it and the availability of it is also the benefit, too, because you can get this stuff without raising anybody's eyebrows. If you walked into Cabela's or Jay's Sporting Goods tomorrow and you bought a couple of Pyrodex, nobody's going to raise their eyebrows at you for doing that, especially if you walk in there with a camouflage hat and a Great Lakes Whitetails jacket on. Well, that's not very comforting. <laughs> well, you know, but it's, that's worth you, – you have to consider that part yeah. of it. I mean, the simplicity of it certainly certainly – doesn't necessarily speak to the motive or, or the sophistication of the bomb maker. Um, they could be hiding behind the simplicity of it. Widely available. I can get it without popping up on anybody's radar. It's not going to alert some federal database somewhere, some monitoring when I buy this. I can probably get it in a hardware store, put some cash down on the table for it, and there's really no record that I got it. It just seems so weird to me in a small town, um, and it wasn't like they put it at the bus station where it's going to, you know, or the, you know, a grocery store parking lot where you're going to have a whole lot of people. It was at a very small convenience store on a day that was probably going to be less busy than usual. It just, there's things about it that don't make sense to me. Well, I think, you know, the fact that it's not as busy as usual is, um, not as ages if you're trying to inflict the maximum amount of, if you're going for the, the casualty count, if you're if what you're looking for is the body count. Certainly not advantageous to do it on Christmas Day. But if you're looking to move around fairly undetected, That's so, true. And just, you know, and that, it, it depends. It's, it is a small town, so you can't rule out the possibility that it was somebody in that area that nobody gave a second thought to being there because it was a fixture or a regular site and had no reason to question it. Uh-huh. 
let's say it's as they said, and because I, I spoke to one witness that they hypnotized, <clears throat> who participated in some drawings, and what he remembered is the handles. So it was a like a shoebox size put in a uh, gift bag, but um, the bag was held. You know the little. Um, the whatever the the toggle is that you you normally loop that air hose over when you're done or usually a lot of people don't yes. but okay so the bag was hanging from that and then sure. then the um cord was go- going from inside the bo- uh, bag that's tacked to the box and all the way up it how how is this something quick to put to you know if someone's going to put this device here how long is it going to take them to do it um i would say that uh Again, that largely depends on the type of person doing it and what their motivation was and what their skill set was. I think if it's a competent person doing this, and I have no reason to believe it's not, they could probably have done that within a matter of seconds. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Um, and, and, that's, and I think that's, you know, the point that I was trying to drive at before to kind of wrap it up is mm-hmm. nicely in a boat with a pull on it is to take the right mixture that you needed, to find the right explosive that you needed, and to put it in the container that you needed for that explosive to act as a high-order explosive to achieve the maximum velocity. And with the triggering device here that we have plenty of reason to believe is certainly, while it may not be advanced, it's certainly not rudimentary. Mm -hmm. Um, It would give me pause. I would not expect this is something that some dumb teenager did on Christmas Day for kicks. Uh, And I think the container that the bomb itself was placed in speaks even more to that because the FBI says this was at least eight inches long. Um, but we can probably infer that because it was placed in some type of shoebox-sized container, that it certainly couldn't have exceeded much more than that. It certainly would not have been more than a foot long, most likely less than a foot long, to fit down within the dimensions of that shoebox. Right. Which reinforces my concern even more that not only did they use the right mixture, they used the right container to make this mixture add to make this explosive act as a high-order explosive. Um, because that's not something that you just come by, and that's not really something that you, you just, the stars line up for you, and you just get that foolishly lucky. Um, you know, hmm. and it's, it's an anti-personnel device placed in a conspicuous area where sooner or later somebody was going to put hands on it, whether they were grabbing the box to see what was in it or removing it to use the air compressor. This thing was placed, designed in place to hurt somebody. You know, you can, you can venture down the road of whether or not somebody in somebody in particular was being targeted but uh i mean the randomness of a air compressor pump at a gas station that anybody could have driven by at any time would seem to indicate that was likely not the case right um you know and that's really when you think about somebody that does something like this as i've said before and i'll reiterate this isn't just a one-off it's not something that somebody decides they never want to do again i wouldn't think unless they were trying to target somebody failed miserably and they've moved on with life but uh i would guess that this person has gone on to commit other crimes, if not similar crimes. What would be similar crimes? Uh, well, you know, if you're the type of person that, uh, when you, you know, going back down on the road of the, the behavioral psychology aspect of this, if you're the kind of person that achieves satisfaction from hurting others, um, I guess, you know, you probably experiment with things and maybe you find out that explosives just aren't your wheelhouse. Uh, maybe the risk risk against the perpetrator themselves was too great. Um, Maybe the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. They found something that they were better at, something more efficient. I, it's anybody's mm. guess. Yeah. 
That's interesting. Another thing to think of it, and I hadn't really thought about either because, you know, you're taking a lot of risk with placing a bomb. That's a, 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 to yourself and getting caught doing it. You know, it's not one of those things that you can kind of do where no one's going to see you. There's Especially putting it in a public place, There's you're definitely taking a risk. Well, you, you certainly are. I mean, if you think, uh, you think about it, put it in context this way. If you look at any given year around July 4th, the standard gomer using fairly safe home-grade fireworks I mean, every year we manage to have hundreds, not thousands of people blowing off appendages and or killing themselves. <laughs> That's true. So when you take that a step further and you're deliberately creating explosives for the purpose of maiming and killing, you've ratcheted up the stakes. It's not just for the public. It's more dangerous for you, too. Yeah. There were jagged pieces of what was later determined to be a Terpex can, a brand of turpentine substitute, found all around the shop-and-go parking lot and in the adjacent roadway and some even inside the store, and that indicated that the can itself had been either a part of or in close proximity to the detonated device when it exploded. The thinking was it was likely an integral component of the bomb. Terpex is a combustible containing petroleum distillate and hydrocarbon. The FBI was able to read a manufacturer's code on a piece of the damaged can, but after contacting the manufacturer, were only able to determine a date when the product container was filled, which in this case was March 13, 1984, eight months prior to the incident. As I thought about your first question there involving the turpentine, uh-huh. turpentine is in fact quite flammable. <clears throat> and when we were asking about, you know, the presence of it or what purpose that might serve, it came to me that, uh, you know, clearly there's no innocent explanation for why that would be there. It most likely was not just simply left there before the device was ever planted. There would be no reason for it to be there. Mm-hmm. So, and, and given the damage to the can, you could safely assume it was part of, or at least next to, the initial device. Is that fair? Yes, and I believe, just based on what I've read, that they do believe it was somehow adjacent to it. Now, they didn't want to, you know, say, you know, in the box or whatever, but they believe it probably had something to do with it, yes. Sure. So, you know, like I said, being in the realm of fire investigation, because it's it's you're considered an expert in the field, I'm allowed to give my opinion on things. So I'm going to give my opinion on what I think the presence of that turpentine means for this. Okay. And when I think about it, I'm, I'm going to tell you that the explanation is very dark and nefarious. Uh-oh. I would posit that it was placed next to the device, knowing that the initial device was going to compromise that can and expose those extremely flammable vapors to an ignition source which would then cause secondary thermal and chemical injuries to whomever was in the path of the blast. Thermal meaning burns, right? That means, yes. talking, well, yep. he, he was burned yes. over a large portion of his body, yes. Yes, and I think that that would serve well to explain those burns because, I, and I may be speaking out of turn, but I don't know necessarily that the simple presence of a, of a um, double-based gunpowder would cause those type of thermal burns especially in that container because it's going to be consumed so rapidly by the reaction. I just don't know that it would cause those thermal burns. And I could be wrong in assuming that, but I think that an explanation for the thermal injuries is is probably better ascribed to the presence of the turpentine. That's like awful. That's like nails plus turpentine, you know, and so that maybe would explain because the women, the clerk in the inside of the store and um, 
the one customer that was in there said that when they looked out the window, they heard the explosion, they looked out the window, and there was a, a six to eight foot fireball out there, out yes. that big. And I now, think that does a better job of explaining the presence of that fireball. Okay. Gunpowder of any kind, as I said before, doesn't burn efficiently. So when you burn gunpowder, you will often get large orange fireballs like that. But with the application of it in, in this particular incident where it was, whether intentionally or not, used in a way that created a high order or high explosive kind of result, um, I don't think that the fireball necessarily would have been created by the gunpowder in this instance. I think the presence of the flame and the thermal injuries to the victims probably probably better assigned to the turpentine. Um, and I think probably even a medical expert, you know, a forensic pathologist could probably look at that and offer, you know, a secondary opinion on that. But that would be my opinion, I guess, um, Are, with respect to the presence of the turpentine. Is that common? Have you ever heard of that? Like putting an in a, in a pipe bomb package some other flammable liquid? Well, I can tell you from my experience in the military and my experience as a first responder that one of the things that we worry about the most now with, uh, I, I guess, what they call quote-unquote man-made disasters or acts of terrorism, whether they're domestic or foreign, we often worry about secondary devices. Now, we, we worry about that on a grander scale. You'll often have the initial device which creates the mayhem and chaos that necessitates our response. And then once we are on scene, you'll have a secondary device that is designed to inflict injuries on the responders. Now, this mm -hmm. may have something, this may be comparable on a smaller scale where you have the initial device which is designed to inflict what would be considered, uh, there's four different types of blast injuries. Um, your primary injuries are caused by the force of the blast or the wave, the shock wave, for lack of a better term. Your secondary injuries are caused by the projectiles that the blast causes. Um, and then your, your third and your fourth, your tertiary. Um, tertiary are usually caused by you being propulsed by the blast and then hitting things or landing on things. And then there's an, another one beyond that. I forget the word for it right now. It escapes me. But that's essentially injuries that you receive um, as a result of the incident, uh, similar to like 9-11 illness and cancers or, or inhalation of noxious fumes and vapors and things like that. Mm -hmm. So... Um, you would not receive primary injuries, blast force injuries, with low yield or low explosives. Um, that would only be present for the high explosives. So for this particular incident, he would have received what are considered secondary injuries from the device. That would be the puncture and the impact of the projectiles hurled into the air by the explosion. And then those those other injuries, those tertiary injuries, I suppose, well, you wouldn't even call them that. I suppose that would be the, it's a, it's a Q word that escapes me at this time. I'm running on fumes here and I'm a little tired, but that's those thermal burns and things of that nature. So it's almost in itself on a smaller scale, a primary and secondary attack on an individual almost is what I would describe that as. Hmm. So it makes me, I mean, I guess what we're talking about, just bottom line, is it seems like they put a a turpent bottle with turpentine in it and it's a turpentine substitute in the bag like or or in the box with the device itself and then mm -hmm. and then it i mean i don't understand why they would uh, I, well it, it's all it's almost as if it wasn't enough to fill somebody with nails and whatever else was in there 
Um, and I, and I, do, I really do believe the more I think about this, and, and it led me to another thought that I'll share with you as well. Okay. But I really believe that this device was designed and placed, I truly do believe, with the intent to cause the maximum amount of injury on the individual or individuals that were in close proximity to it. And I think that the presence of that turpentine only serves to reinforce my belief. And so then you have to ask yourself if they're setting it in a place where they're maybe not going to have control over who the victim is. Now, maybe, you know, I mean, I don't... Yeah, it would be truly, truly a psychopathic or sociopathic act. Because they don't have a specific victim. They're just, you know, it's going to be a random person. Yes, it's just to it's just to inflict harm on somebody for whatever motivation that they have. And like I said earlier, you know, when we talk about certain motivations for these types of things, terrorism certainly doesn't fit the bill because you you look at this and you look at what the results were of this, and it just doesn't serve any particular uh, terror group or terror motivations purpose. No, uh, it doesn't. It, you know, they're used typically to inculcate fear in a population or certain group of people. With the, with the intent to cause some type of social change or political change. And that didn't cause that here. Now, you could argue that it scared the hell out of a lot of people and that community was probably on edge for a while. Mm-hmm. But uh, what does that accomplish for the suspect other than some sort of twisted satisfaction? Yeah, and then another thing that you had said to me, would you, you would be surprised if this person had not been, had not done this, before or after is maybe this was sort of like you said a level of experiment with putting that turpentine in there let's see what this does you know let's try it this way that absolutely could be turpentine is nasty stuff anyways it's it's just a nasty chemical that you don't want on your skin you don't want to inhale um so to place that in there it's just such a malicious thing to do uh there's certainly just very wicked malice of forethought in this whole process um, and the other thing that I thought about, which in, in thinking about, you know, the types of explosions that we have, the type of explosives that we can use, um, when we were talking about high explosives versus low explosives, one of the characteristics of high explosives is that when they, when there's a detonation, it, that it's so violent and, and the velocity is such, and that the, 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 the entire, uh, the release, the reaction is so significant that it causes disturbances in the immediate area and it would create what we would call a seat, a seat of the explosion. So if you saw it on a lawn somewhere, you would have pulverized soil and a hole in the ground. And oftentimes when we're looking at a case where some type of explosive device has been used, we look for that seat because it can tell us a lot of things about the device and it can also help us find components of the device. Now, explosions themselves are often affected by certain conditions this goes really deep into the weeds on the science of explosions. You have certain things like reflection or refraction. Um, the wave of the explosion, if it hits a, a difference in air temperature, it can cause a refraction. If it hits a solid item, it can cause a reflection. Uh, so explosions tend to want to, by their nature, occur rather spherically. There's a pretty uniform 360-degree release of energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's only disrupted by the presence of certain items or, or um, obstructions, barricades, things like that. And they can naturally occur. They can, you know, they can be in places like homes, residences, buildings, those sorts of things. So I have to wonder as well uh, to hang 
rather than leaving it sit there would seem to indicate to me that there may have been some desire or some intent to ensure that there was a spherical release of that energy in the projectiles within for the maximum effect. Huh, um, that's because interesting. If it, been, if it had been placed at the base of the compressor or at the face of it, that's going to serve to direct the energy of that explosion certain in certain directions. Um, whereas if you hang it, then you have a better chance of directing that energy out away in a spherical pattern. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It does make sense. Um, which, and, and I think probably what the ATF and, 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 you know, and I can't speak for them, they're certainly far more advanced in the investigation of these devices than I am. But I think that, you know, you, you're often struck by your first impressions, and then when you have time to kind of process and, and metabolize things, you know, you work through it and you come to different you have different hypotheses that you have to test and work through. And they probably were going through this process much the way I have. We're on its face. It didn't appear to be much. The FBI is pretty vague in their lab analysis of it. and I haven't seen, obviously, anything that the uh, ATF came from it, but you made mention that. At some point, their opinion started to turn away from the fact that this was some one-off rudimentary kind of primitive device to, mm-hmm. hey, maybe this is more sophisticated. Right, and I think that when you when you think about when you consider the placement of the turpentine, the per- possible purpose behind suspending the device from the uh, from the air compressor as opposed to leaving it at the base, I think those are the, probably the factors that are pushing them to believe that this person had an above average knowledge at a minimum of explosive devices, and that this probably wasn't just some scrope bag that happened by and thought, you know what, I'm going to give this a run today because I'm nefarious and I want to hurt somebody. Um, yeah. There's probably somebody a little more sophisticated, meticulous, and maniacal. Yeah. Investigations are a process of elimination, and, you know, with respect to the turpentine, you really, you really can't you really can't come to any other innocent explanation for why that would be there. There's just no reason. I don't, I can't think of any reason it would be there for propulsion for the device. The device clearly was, you know, in and of itself enough for detonation and for the, uh, the projectiles to be hurled through the air. So I, there's risk to me when I arrive at that point where there's no other explanation for this, when there's no other reason that it would be there. I, I feel safe and confident with, drawing that assumption mm-hmm. it kind of it just strengthens the point that i i would hope and, and i you know and i don't know because i wasn't there i don't know the investigators but i would not let the simplicity of the device jade me in in my investigation of this i think that we need to be wary um because sometimes the sophistication and the ingenuity and things is found in the simplicity of it um mm-hmm. because if you're somebody that does this and you are, through your actions, able to convince the investigators that you're just some low IQ dirtbag that got lucky, and they're not really looking for much beyond that. Uh, you've accomplished two things. You've, you've pulled off a vicious crime, and you've done it in a way that you're, you've established a pretty good chance that you're not going to be apprehended for it. Thanks again to Brett Holmes for agreeing to speak with me. It was very helpful. His observations were very important to my understanding of this bomb and this case. Stay tuned. 